I'm Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And currently, in this moment, right now, I'm actually quite blown away by human beings' will to survive. People will do the craziest things to stay alive. In the name of self-preservation, we will do wild things, mind-blowing things. Perhaps you've heard of this fella. His name is Aaron Ralston. You may not know his name, but you might have seen him in the movie 127 Hours. Uh, Ralston, when he watched the film, said, Wow, this is like a documentary of my life. He totally loved it. When uh, the, the film first premiered, though, many moviegoers found themselves throwing up in their chairs. So if, you're, if you have a soft stomach, just hang in there with me for a second. Remember... The will to survive is crazy. For the sake of self-preservation, we will do wild things. So Ralston fancied himself an outdoorsman. Some of us are indoorsmen. He was an outdoorsman. He went to Carnegie Mellon, decided, ah, this isn't for me, moves to Aspen, and decides that he wants to hike all the 14ers, I think is what they call them, 14ers. Does that sound like a real thing? If you don't know what it is, don't worry. You're fine. So he's doing all his hiking. He's hiking alone. Uh, he had like a little warning. He was hiking and there was an avalanche and he just barely kind of survived with some friends and thought, I don't need to change anything about what I'm doing. Let's keep doing this. So one day he's in Utah. I think it's called Blue John Canyon. He bikes a bunch of miles, takes a lock, locks his bike up on a tree and then goes hiking. And as he's hiking in, I believe, what's called Blue John Canyon, he, the rock beneath him slides out, and he falls and gets his arm sandwiched between an 800-pound boulder and a cliff. So he's literally between a rock and a hard place. Not funny, all right? Not for, sorry. Just had to, I'm a dad. I get to do these things. Now, <clears throat> the will to survive is amazing. We do crazy things for the sake of self-preservation. Had that happened to me, I'd have called it a day. I'm like, you know what? I had a good run. Life was pretty beautiful. Got to marry my dream girl. Had some cute kids. Goodbye, world. That's it. No, no, no. Not for Aaron. After his supplies ran out, which were two burritos and a water bottle, he started drinking his own urine. Again, we do wild things for self-preservation crazy. That's where the story would have stopped for me, though. I mean, maybe I'll do that. I don't know. We'll try it. Right? I don't know. But he had a cheap pocket knife, and he tried chipping away at the rock. Did not work. So, day turns to night, night turns to day. He's starting to get really tired. And those of you who've seen 127 hours, like, uh-huh, we know what's happening next. He decides to use his camelback as like a sort of tourniquet, breaks his arm, and then using a cheap pocket knife, cuts off his own arm. All right? Self-preservation. Crazy. All right? And again, I, I don't think I would have done that, but the story for me would have definitely ended there because I probably would have passed out a million times and, ooh, this is gross. I don't want to do it. He then, Aaron, then repels, again, remember, he's got one arm. He repels 
down a 60-foot sheer rock cliff. Amazing. And then he, because, you know, he was really far from any civilization. He was 100 feet below the desert surface. He's 20 miles from any road. So he rappels down this cliff. Oh, my gosh. Then what does he do? He hikes six miles. One article I read said that he had lost 25% of his blood. Whew. Praise God for hikers from the Netherlands. Hikers from the Netherlands found him, and as you do, they gave him Oreos and water, and he survived. Amazing. And his life was turned into a film called 127 Hours, starring Hollywood weirdo James Franco. And Aaron watched this film and said, man, this was incredible. It's like a documentary. Amazing. And do you know what Aaron still does? Hikes! I called it a day. But the will to survive is remarkable. You and I will do wild things in the name of self-preservation. And that's good, right? Life, great. We like being alive. We're very much in favor of being alive. However, Ever since these two trees came onto the scene, these two poorly watered trees, we learned you have to water trees, apparently. Ever since these two trees came onto the scene, our vision has become blurry. Something happened beneath, between these two trees. Something happened that has altered the way we see reality. And so now, we view the one thing that's supposed to be life-giving, nourishing, that is the biggest, the biggest predictor of our well-being. We view that thing with suspicion. We now have turned the gift into the threat. And in the name of self-preservation, we will do wild things to stay alive. And they're not always pretty. Because our vision has been blurred. Because of what happened between these two trees. What I want to lay out for you this morning is that the greatest predictor of your flourishing, of your well-being can also feel like the greatest threat to your flourishing, to your well-being. And if we don't understand, if we don't see clearly what happened between these two trees, we are doomed to repeat the mistake of our first parents. If we don't see that the gift was viewed with suspicion, we are doomed to keep repeating the same mistake made by our first parents. What is that gift? What was twisted? What was seen as beautiful and then was later twisted to be seen with suspicion? relationships. The greatest predictor of your well-being, let's just say physical well-being, 
right? You want to lower your risk of a heart attack, stroke, dementia, the greatest predictor of that, your social network. Long before March of 2020, there was another epidemic. In 2019, the former U.S. Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, said, we are in an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. I don't know about you, I think the pandemic really helped that, right? We all just came together and relationships just flourished and we're all, no one's alone anymore, right? No? Just me? Huh. What happened between these two trees was that the gift relationship got twisted. There, were, there was one lie, but there were very few lies that the serpent told the man and the woman. Most everything was mostly true. But the lie that was told was about relationships. God is not for you. God is not good. He's not on your side. He's not coming after you. He's withholding relationship. The text that we're about to look at says that the man and his wife were put in the garden and they were naked and knew no shame. And the only before and after we get, the only before and after that we're given in the, in the fall story, we call the fall, is that they were naked and not ashamed and then they saw that they were naked and they hid. Vulnerability and innocence, relationship, is met with a threat. And then that vulnerability and innocence turns into something very dangerous. What are we to do? Right? The, like, relationships got us into this mess. And please, do not hear me say, when I say relationships are the answer, you're like, well, does that mean I have to like, just be really vulnerable with everybody. There are dangerous people out there. Yes, there are. So what do we do when relationships got us into a mess? And it seems like I'm proposing the way out of this mess is through relationships. What, are, what do we do when the, actually though the relationships still seem to be a problem? There are dangerous people in your life. You can share your story at a connection group. And then you were wandering through, eat well, and someone goes, oh my goodness, I heard you were really struggling with depression. And you're like, what? How'd you hear that? Oh, so-and-so told me from your connection group. You're like, what the heck? That happens. It's happened at this church. Right? What, what do you do? What do you do when you make a dinner date plan with a friend, someone you trust, you're excited, you're looking forward to it, you text them, hey, can we get dinner... Tuesday at 8. Like, totally, right? They send you the thumb. Like, yes, all right. Day of. Hey, sorry, family emergency came up. You're like, no problem. I'm going to send the most gracious reply. Yeah, family first. You, you take care of you. We'll, do, we'll catch up another time. You're like, man, that was a great response. I'm, I'm still going to go out, but that was a great response. And then you're at the restaurant. Who do you see? The friend. And who are they with? Another friend. Relationships, uh-oh, rejection. What do you do? Well, the best defense is a good offense, right? So we call the connection group. Hey, you really got to pray for me. I'm really struggling to be righteous in this situation. What happened? Man, Brian is just awful. He's a liar. Really? Yeah, could you just pray for me that I'd respond really well? 
right? The best defense is a good offense. Relationships get us into a mess. Now, what do I mean when I say relationships are the way out of that mess? We were wired for relationship. And between these two trees, that got twisted. And now our vision is blurry. And the invitation is to say, am I going to stay at this tree? Really, we should switch them. Because this is the tree of life, but it is, uh, it, I don't know. We, the staff went on a retreat and we forgot to tell someone to water the plants. So this is, this is our tree of life. It'll, we'll see, you know, it's actually a better example. Like this tree of life is so vibrant, we'll come back from the dead. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil says, hey, God is harmful. People are harmful. You know what the best course of action is? Hide. People are dangerous. People will lie. Have you heard of vulnerability porn? What's that? Vulnerability porn is when people become very vulnerable toward you. They're like, oh man, here's my life. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm struggling with. And you, you think, wow, this person's being so vulnerable. But they're not actually being vulnerable. They're sharing enough with you so that you're vulnerable and then they use that against you. They call that vulnerability porn. I don't name things. It's a tricky world we live in. And our wisdom says, there are people that go bump in the night. There's scary people out there. Run and hide. Stay away. Don't give your heart to people. Don't give your heart to institutions. They'll just hurt you. They'll just let you down. But the wisdom of this tree says, what got us into this mess is going to be the vehicle that God uses to drive us out of this mess. What had done the damage is going to also do the repairing. You and I are so deeply relational. And I'm kind of introverted, all right? I, you know, I like to be the life of the party, and I also like to be away from the party, all right? But we are so fundamentally wired to need others that it's deeply connected to our experience of God. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to read verses 25 all the way to 3.15. Genesis 2.25 through 3.15. I'm going to read it. And then one of the things we like to do around here is I'm going to say when we're done, this is the word of the Lord, and you can reply, thanks be to God. All right? Sound good? Everybody tracking? Yeah, we're tracking. Great. Thank you. You don't have to be afraid. You can, this is, we can call in response. Don't be, don't be scared. No one's going to kick you out of here. Uh, all right. Would you please stand with me as we read God's Word? Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Adam and his wife were both, as they say in Missouri, naked and felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We, we may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. You will definitely not die, the serpent said to the woman. Because God knows 
that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the what? Trees. We'll remember that for later. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, uh, The woman, the woman that you put here with me, uh, she gave me some fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we need your help today. God, relationships feel threatening. Relationships are threatening. And Father, we want to stay hidden. But God, just like you came searching for Adam and Eve, you come searching for us. God, help us to be open to another perspective. That perhaps you are good. That perhaps you're for us. You're on our side. You're coming after us and you are relentless. Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. Self-preservation and the tale of two trees. We're deeply relational beings. We're deeply relational. We talked about during the creation story, God looks out at his creation and seven times, which is the number of wholeness, says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he creates human. That's what Adam means, human. And then he says, ooh, something's not good. It's not good that this human be alone. Think about that. Everything's good. Everything's good, but it's not good that we're alone. Dangerous and bad things happen to us when we isolate. You ever met somebody who believes a conspiracy theory? Some of us have. Some of us have. You know, most of these people who just get sucked into these rabbit holes do not have many in-person, life-giving, thriving relationships with a wide array of people. All right? They isolate, and then they go, ah, the world's a scary, terrifying place. Right? Ah! It's not good for us to be alone. We need other people. We need relationships. We are wired for relationships. Again, the greatest predictor of our own physical health is our social network. Why is that? Because we need others. We need other people. And that's where this pun comes in. This pun comes in in Genesis 2.25. At Genesis 2.25, God describes the first people. 
Right? It's not good for someone to be alone. Okay, there's a partnership here. Man and woman. And, and what's their relationship like? Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Then another character is introduced, though. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. There's a pun in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word for naked is a rome. And then in Hebrew, the word for crafty is a room. All right? So the, the man and his wife were a rome. And the snake was a room. You hear how similar those sound? It, the best we can do in English is nude and shrewd. They're connecting this idea. There's a relationship here and there's total vulnerability. There's nothing to hide. They're completely exposed. They're saying we know each other. We're seen. And we have this beautiful relationship. There's innocence and naivete. And it's good, and it's beautiful. And then there's someone who's wise, who's skilled, who knows how to twist things, and it's dangerous. And that's why we have to talk about what this tree, this tree right here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, really means. Remember last week we talked about, I don't think God is testing. I don't think he's like, hey, I put you in a good garden. Here's a death fruit. Pfft, watch out. All right? Rather, I think, I think what's more helpful than saying good and evil, what's more helpful than that is to say beneficial and harmful. This is the tree of the knowledge of what's beneficial and what's harmful. You're like, what? You're changing the Bible. Hang on with me for a second. All right? When I hear good and evil, I think like morality, right? So it's good to help elderly people across the street. It's evil to steal ice cream from Hy-Vee, okay? Good and evil. So I don't know good and evil. I'll eat this fruit and it will help me understand what good and evil is. I don't think that's what's happening here. And actually the Hebrew Bible uses those two words, good and evil, several times. Here's just a list of passages that use it to talk about knowing and discerning what's beneficial and what's harmful. And it's always connected to this idea of wisdom and maturity. I know, I know how to navigate God's creation, and I'm going to use it in a way that's beneficial rather than using it in a way that's harmful. The word for good has already been used seven times in the Hebrew Bible. God sees his creation and sees that it is good. It's good. It's good. It's beneficial. It's life-giving. It's not morally good, right? I mean, it is morally good, but it's not just morally good, right? It's life-giving. It's flourishing. It's thriving. And, the, and then the Hebrew word for bad definitely has morality involved in it, but it's harmful. This is dangerous, right? And so you, when you eat the fruit of this tree, you start to understand what's helpful and what's harmful. Wisdom, right? If you think about the temptation of Jesus, for, just for a minute, the devil brings him out to the wilderness and he tempts him. What does he tempt him with? Hey, you can have all the kingdoms of the earth. Think about it for a second. Is it wrong and bad for Jesus to have all the kingdoms of the earth? No. no. Thank you. No, it's not. All right? But the devil is saying, don't trust God. He's got a wackadoodle plan. Take a shortcut. We'll get there faster. The good thing, we'll get it faster. Same thing with this tree. You need to know how to navigate creation. You need to know what's beneficial, what's harmful. Yes, you know what's good and evil, but you also need to know beyond that. You need to have wisdom to rule and reign with God. And what, what we're saying, what Old Testament scholar John Walton says, is it wasn't like this tree was bad, just Adam and Eve weren't ready for it. Right? So I, I personally believe we should teach everybody about the Holocaust. It's a tremendous evil that our grandfathers fought 
and one, totally good and appropriate to teach everyone about the evils of the Holocaust. How do you teach a five-year-old about the Holocaust, though? And, and like, I'm, this is what I'm navigating with my six-year-old. He's very curious. He's like, hey, Dad, what's the Holocaust? Uh, right? There, he needs to know about the Holocaust. And there's an appropriate way to share that with a six-year-old. I don't think we're watching Schindler's List together. Come on, son. Right? Not appropriate. That's exactly what this tree is. You need to understand that in creation, there's things that are beneficial, there's things that are harmful. The Satan comes and he twists that. And he starts to say, I don't think God is beneficial. Right? Look with me at verse 1. Did God really say you must not eat from any of the tree of the garden? Now, the Satan says a lot of things. This thing, though, is the first totally, like, it's the only thing that's completely untrue. Remember the first command in Scripture, Genesis 2.16. God puts them in a garden that's good, beautiful, and useful. He's going to care for their needs. And he says, eat freely. It's the first command in Scripture. It's all yours. He says, did God really say not to eat anything? And they're like, what? No, he didn't say that at all. What he's trying to do is he's twisting things to say, this relationship with God is not what you think it is. He, yes, he said he's for you. He's here to care for you. Ooh, ooh. What kind of God would put you in this beautiful garden and not let you eat trees, eat the fruit of the trees? Someone who's not looking out for you. He's trying to hold, he doesn't want you to be like him. Right, that's what he said. In the day, God knows in the day you eat of it, you'll be like him. He's trying to hoard. He's got this all for himself. Relationships get twisted. Relationships were a means, remember this tree, the tree of life represents God's life-giving care and presence. It's a picture, a sacred picture of how God is saying, hey, I'm here to care for you. I'm for your good. My presence. Stick with me, that relationship. And it says that they walked together in the garden. And the Satan says, wait a minute, that relationship is fishy. What kind of a God is like this? We, that, that lie has blurred our vision ever since. Right? What happens? What's the very first thing? Look with me at Genesis 3, verse 7. The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. And so what do they cover themselves up with? They sewed what? Fig leaves. That's super interesting, right? Remember this is all about trees? We've got tree problems. What do they do? They use God's gifts to hide from God. God gave them trees as a symbol of like, hey, I care for you. I'm for your good. I'm for your flourishing. They believe God's bad. And then they use his gifts to hide from him. Right? And this happens all the time at church. All the time. Churches everywhere are filled with people who are using God to hide from God. A friend of mine told me about a pastor friend of his who was a narcissistic bully. Right? Just abused authority was a real piece of work. All right? But he had a gifting. He was a very gifted evangelist. So when the temperature got turned up and he started getting in trouble, he would just use that gift. And people would be like, hey man, what are you doing? He's like, well, look at the gift. Right? And he never got to confront the damage he was doing relationally because he was using a gift to hide from God. We can do that all the time. You and I do that. 
Like, please, please hear me clearly. I'm not up here because I have mastered when threats come my way. I know how to navigate those in a way that's totally trusting God, that's living at this tree, that says, oh man, God, like, I trust your wisdom. I often go back to this tree. I have ways of self-preservation that I hide behind. Man, these people feel like threats. I've got to cope. Right? One of my biggest coping mechanisms. It's a, it's a gift, too. Like, people are like, man, you are so smart. Well, one, part of the reason is because when life gets hard, I just like binge YouTube. And the things I watch on YouTube are super interesting. Right? And I just remember all these things. Right? Like, oh, man, I feel a lot of pressure. How do I cope with that pressure? I don't pursue relationships. I go in my head and I watch a ton of YouTube. And then I'm like, hey, do you ever wonder what inflation is? I watched this fascinating video from Ray Dalio that explains inflation. And when you have more money than you have goods, and people are like, how does he know this? Well, I don't have healthy coping mechanisms all the time. So I'm, we're students. We're students together. We're learning that when threats come, when, when, when threats from other people, dangerous people come, how do we properly say, God, you said this. It doesn't feel like this. I want to live at this tree, though. When it feels like relationships are the most threatening, that's absolutely the time we need to lean into relationships the most. The most. Now, something always happens when I preach. It always happens. Sometimes it's positive. Sometimes it's negative. But I'll say something, and people will talk to me, man, I love that you said this. This totally changed my life. You said this, this, this. I'm like... Oh, I didn't say any of that. But cool. Like, thank you. Right? They just filled in the blank. Sometimes, like, I can't believe you believe this. You said this, this, and this. I'm like, I actually didn't say any of that. Right? Sometimes I say things, and, and, and it's not super clear, and people fill in the blanks. This morning, I want to alleviate any of that, any possibility of filling in the blanks. When I say relationships are the problem, and then I say they also are the solution, do not hear me say, do not hear me say, are you in an abusive relationship with someone? You need to really pursue that person. Do you know a toxic person in your life? Go take them to coffee. I am not saying that. All right? So just like relationships are the problem, they're also the answer. There are people out there that are just bad news bears. All right? There are people out there who are dangerous. Right? And you have to, at some point, with some of those people say, not my problem. There are other people who are called to help you get out of the hole you're in, and it's not going to be me. I am not talking about running into toxic relationships and just give it the old college try, folks. I'm not talking about that. What I am talking about, though, is that when people hurt us, when people come after us, when our friends cancel on us, when our church leaders disappoint us, when our connection group, when our small group betrays us, that moment, the temptation is to try to go it alone. And I'm saying, no, no, no. We need to lean into a different temptation. We need to lean into, actually, I need people in my life right now. That's really hard. And I, like you, am a student. When things get hard, oh, I'm going to isolate. Some of you might be aware of this language. Uh, on the Enneagram, under stress, I'm a five. Some of you are like, what, what are we talking about? If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But all that means is like when I'm under pressure, I just totally get in my head and I start trying to work things out. I need this message just like I'm not, this is, I'm not preaching the choir. We're all students in this together. You ever wonder why 
Jesus links two commands together that very rarely were linked together in the Hebrew Bible. In three of the Gospels, a lawyer comes up to him and says this. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is what? Like it. Yes, it is. The second, thank you. I was like, oh, this, is, this could go anywhere. The second is like it. The second is connected. It's very similar. It's attached to the same root. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. We are deeply relational people. You cannot, you cannot find fulfillment, wholeness, and meaning in isolation. You can't. If you could, I'd be the most fulfilled whole person ever. All right? You cannot find meaning on your own. We need each other. We are deeply relational people. That's part of what it means to be in the image of God. And so when God says, love God and love others, those should not be seen as, okay, some days I'll love God and some days I'll love other people. They're hardwired together. What's the first thing that God says is not good? It's not good for man to be alone. Remember, he had God. He lived in a garden with God. Have any of you ever lived in a garden with God? No. And God's saying, this isn't enough. It's not good. Lotov. There, now you know some Hebrew. That's a whole sentence in Hebrew. Lotov. All right? This is not good. Is it good? No, it is not good. Our flourishing comes through the very thing that we feel threatens us. And until we really see that God is good, we're going to stay doubtful. We're going to have a hard time trusting. But it's through seeing that he's good that we learn to do that. Now, when we talk about relationships being good for us, again, I want you to hear me say this. I'll say it again and again. If you need to, write me an email. I'll put it in print. All right? I'm not saying pursue toxic relationships. All right? But I do, I do think it's important that we have some mental categories for the relationships in our lives. Because I don't also want you to hear me putting this heavy burden on you. You've got to be Fred Rogers. Right? You've just got to be the most like, hey-ho, you know, like, uh, what's his name from Simpsons? Lovejoy? You know, hi-ho diddly, neighbor Ridley. Like, I'm just so relational. I want to be around people all the time because I was wired for relationships. Hello? All right. Let's take a breath. That's not the invitation of Genesis 3. All right? And if we can work out some categories for relationships, these, we can experience the life-giving power of those relationships. And we can experience God through those relationships. But if we go into those with wrong expectations, with wrong, with wrong ways of like, okay, this has to be everything. Every person I have to meet has to meet all my needs. They got to like, I got to really, I need you to grow. So whew, I'm, this is it. We're, I'm strapping myself to the mass of this boat and we're going down together. I thought we were just getting coffee. Right? We want to have some categories for this. Because look at what happened. This is why this is so important. Look with me again at Genesis. So remember, the man and his wife are naked and feel no what? Shame. Ooh. That's the only before, the like pre-fall picture we get. We, the only pre-fall, post-fall picture we get is that the man and his wife were naked and knew no shame. And then that's pre-fall. Then after the fall, they realized they were naked and hid. 
Pre-fall, vulnerability, good. Post-fall, vulnerability, bad. Terrifying. Right? And then, and then, think about it, this is all relational. Right? What happens? The eyes of both of them were open. And then verse 8. The man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. Now, why is that important? It's because the Lord God walked in the garden with the man and his wife. It was relational. Now they hear God moving toward them in relationship, and what do they do? They run and hide. And where do they hide? Among the trees. Right? Some of you thought, we're doing a theme study of the Bible. That's going to be great. We'll study themes like joy and grace. And we ended up studying trees. And we're going to do mountains after that. And you're like, what in the world kind of theme study is this? The biblical authors saw trees as being so important to understanding our relationship with God. And it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Using God to hide from God. He provided trees. And now we use those good gifts to hide from them. Some of us are very funny people. And we use humor as a safety blanket. Using a good gift. I love funny people. Love, they're my favorite people. Love, love, love funny people. You ever around a funny person, though, who doesn't like being uncomfortable? Good night. That is, the gift becomes a curse. Right? People who have servants' hearts beautiful. It's so beautiful to be like the person who's like, hey, we had a party. I'm going to go around and clean up those solo cups. I'm going to go around. I'm going to wipe the table. Amazing. You ever been around someone who has a servant's heart, though, that's using it to hide from other people? Oh, my goodness. It's exhausting. Relationships become the problem, and they also can become the place we hide. So how do we move forward? How do we be people who navigate these relationships in a way that's life-giving and healing? A way. Again, not the way. Like we're not the Ohio State University. We're just an Ohio State University. We're just a way. All right? A way that we can navigate relationships in a way that's life-giving is having categories for those relationships. It's managing expectations. Because remember, loving God, loving neighbors linked. Not good for us to be alone. All right, we need each other. We're deeply relational. The biggest predictor of our well-being is our social network. Okay, that means I gotta, I gotta just totally open the gates and let everybody into my life. Hang on. We're gonna try to navigate these five categories of people, and it kind of helps us see a different nuance of what we need. We need different things from different people. We can't expect, we can't expect everyone to meet all our needs. The word for that is codependency. When we expect one person to meet all our needs. We're not codependent people, but we are dependent people. We need each other. You have things I don't. We need each other. But if we don't know how to navigate those relationships, they're not going to be life-giving. So category number one for our relationships. Category number one is the relationship of a coach. And again, this comes from John Townsend. And he likes alliterating things, so we're going to stick with his alliteration. A coach. A coach is somebody who doesn't need you at all, right? They, they don't need your relationship. They don't need your approval. They're pouring into you just because they can. They may be ahead of you. They don't have to be ahead of you in every area of life, but they may be like, oh, they're a great friend. They keep in touch with their friends. I want to be a better friend. I'm going to meet with them. I'm going to say, hey, how did you be such a good friend? 
Right? I have a coach in town. He's, an, he's a retired pastor. And I just love this guy. This guy is just so deeply relational. And so I get together with him. And I'm just like, hey, how are you so relational? And we just have the best conversation. And he doesn't need me. Right? If I don't call for a few months, he's not like, hey, do you hate me? But he doesn't need me. He's older. He's like, whatever, bro. Like, yeah, you, you buy lunch. We'll hang out. Great. He doesn't need me. And that relationship is, is getting at, hey, here's a guy who's ahead of me. He's got cool glasses. And he totally just is somebody I want to be like. He's a coach. Right? And having that category is so very helpful. I, and he's been in ministry for many years. I can say, like, hey, I'm doing this. And he's like, what are you doing? Right? It's really helpful. We need people like that. They can be people at your work. Right? Who are in your job, who have like navigated the relational realities of your job. They can be people at church. We need somebody who doesn't need us who can speak truth into our life. That's the first way we can have good expectations of relationships. We're not expecting everybody to be everything, but we have good expectations. The next. So we go from coaches. Again, don't blame me for the alliteration. Comrades. Comrades. So we need people who don't need anything from us. We also need people who are headed in the same direction as us. These are people who are life-giving friends, who are like, man, we're headed in this direction. Here's my life goals. Here's where I'm going. You're like, me too. Right? And you can say, we're both committed to growth. Let's set up times to just get together and talk about our growth. Right? Let's, let's encourage each other. Let's do this. You know, life, they're on the same like, life trajectory as you. They're life-giving friends. Right? Uh, I don't remember her name, but there's a great book. I, I mean, again... I, every time I endorse a book, someone's like, I read that book, and there was a crazy chapter in there. It's a great book by a totally secular uh, neuropsychiatrist at Stanford. It's called Dopamine Nation. And uh, she posits, I think maybe like Anna Lemke, she posits that when we tell the truth to people, it actually rewires our brain. So think about people who struggled with addiction. If you've ever struggled with addiction, even if you haven't struggled with addiction, you can totally understand this story. Uh, an addict, uh, you know, addicts, love addicts, have people in my life with addiction. People who struggle with addiction often lie, all right? And that's formative, also for our brains. So addicts, though, who've broken a habit, who are really working toward recovery, oftentimes can get held up because of past mistakes catching up with them in the present. Let me give you an example. Imagine with me a man who struggles with addiction, and he's married. His wife was super hurt uh, by his, uh, his addiction. Super hurt. He lied to her. He stole from her. He did all kinds of things. They've worked it out. They're getting back together. They're headed toward healing. The wife uh, goes through, she has a, like an old filing cabinet. She oh, this old wallet. I think there's 300 bucks in here. She opens it up, it's empty. She turns to her husband. Hey, do you know where that 300 bucks went? Mm-hmm. The husband is at a fork in the road. Three years ago, he stole that 300 bucks and bought meth. He's not the same person. He's working toward recovery. But there's temptation. Oh, if I tell her the truth... She's going to, it's just going to stir up all these old feelings and she's going to leave me. What do I do? If in that moment the husband decides to tell the truth, he says, hey, a few years ago, I stole that and I bought drugs with it. It's not me anymore, but it was me. And I lied to you. And I'm actually really scared to tell you that because I don't want you to leave me. In that moment, that man is rewiring his brain. They're called emotionally corrective experiences. And those can undo a whole host of damage. And oftentimes, what happens, what can happen, 
is that when we risk being vulnerable, people don't move away from us, they actually move toward us. Right? Our own wisdom says, ah, if I share, I'm on my own. I'm naked, I gotta hide. We need friends who are headed in the same life trajectory who we can be honest with and vulnerable with and can experience that, wow, they moved toward me when I was being honest and vulnerable. This is amazing. So we need coaches, people who don't need anything from us. We need people who are in the same place who we can share with. All right? And if I just stopped there, you'd be exhausted. Because you're like, great. I've got to put everybody in my life into these two categories. Oh, they either pour into me or I'm like crazy vulnerable with them. Mm-mm, let's keep going. After we've got coaches, after we've got uh, comrades, we've got what Townsend calls uh, casuals. There we go, casuals. And the casuals, they're people you connect with like, man, you like the New York Mets? I love the New York Mets. You like the Red Chili Peppers? I, you like disc golf? I love disc golf. Let's hang out. And they're people that you just get life and energy from, but you're not necessarily saying like, hey, I stole money from my wife to buy drugs. You're just casual, right? Now, the casual is the farm team for those, life, those life-giving relationships. You may say, man, there may be something here. I think I like this person. I think I trust this person. We may be able to slide them over in this category. But you can't put everybody in that, I'm going to be honest with everybody category. If relationships really do change us, transform us, heal us, we can't put expectations on every single relationship to do that. We ha- it has to be totally okay. I like barbecuing with you. You like barbecuing with me. Let's go out on the boat every once in a while. Life is great. And that's totally good. That We have to have that expectation for relationships. It's exhausting if you don't. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good and life-giving. Remember, we're wired for relationships. And so these are life-giving relationships. There's not anything wrong with that. It's not like you love that person less. You're just like, hey, well, you don't actually say that. Let's just be casuals. Don't say that. Like, nobody's going to know what you mean, and they're not going to like you. But you just, in your mind, you say, hey, this is that relationship I get and I need. Because here's what happens. Some of you are hearing this, and I know what you're thinking. That's, that's fine. That's all well and good. But I don't need any of that. I've got God, and I've got my spouse. So I don't need all these relationships. I've got God, and I've got my spouse. May I, just, may I just put on my Pastor Craig hat for a second and just say that if that's your perspective, that is a recipe for disaster. And your spouse is sitting there thanking me. Because what you've just done to your spouse is you have put all your needs and all your expectations on one person. Nobody can handle all the weight of your drama. All right? Nobody. Not your mom and not your wife. All right? You got a lot of stuff going on. And you just say, hey, you, spouse, have to be my coach. You've got to be my life partner. You've got to be someone else I'm like sort of casual with, we can just have fun with. Like, that is way too much to put on one person. Fellas. Fellas, I can't tell you how many fellas I have talked to who have no friends. It's just a thing. The uh, New England Journal of Medicine said it's going to be the health problem in 10 years that a generation of men have no friends. We need other people. We need each other. And we can't expect everything to be everybody. But we're believing the lie of this tree when we say, well, yeah, the rank and file need everybody. But you know, me and God, we got this. No! 
No, Genesis says you're not understanding the story right. It is not good for you to be alone. Do you have to become Lovejoy from uh, The Simpsons? No, you be you in these situations, but you need to find people who can coach you, who can come alongside you. You need to find people you can just have fun with. You need to find those people. Next, the category is it's the least important. I think you spend the least amount of time, but it's just helpful to have this invited coworkers. All right? People you work with, it's life-giving, and you have a great relationship with them because you're headed, you're doing the same job, and that's energizing. Work is good. Remember, God put man in the garden to work and keep. You find people you're working with. They don't have to be your deepest. You're like, hey, we're coworkers. We get along. We're colleagues. This is great. Right? Don't put the weight of expectation on everybody you work with. Like, man, we got to do everything together. Amy and I, we have friends who go to a church, and uh, one of the things that they expect everybody at this church to do is if you go to this church, if you call this church home, they expect you to do nothing alone. So you got to go to Target to buy floss. You got to call somebody from church and be like, hey, I'm headed to Target. You want to come? Yeah, some of you are like, oh, that was not this church, right? Now, now. That might be a good thing to do in seasons of your life. Just say, hey, you know what? For this next couple months, I don't want to be alone. I'm going I'm to try this. All right? But to put that weight on every... I mean, that's just exhausting, right? Don't do that. You just have people, hey, you know what? We work together. We're doing this thing. We like each other. That's great. I'm not going to put the... I was relationally wired. I have to somehow have this hugely impactful connection with you. No. If you love everybody, you love nobody. All right? If you're vulnerable with everybody... You're vulnerable with nobody. We have to say, okay, these are the relationships I have. And the last one, and this is so important for church people, so important. I'm totally, this one I'm totally willing to risk being wildly misunderstood. And this is care. The last category of people you need to put in is care. So just like you have a coach who doesn't need anything from you, you've got to find people that you don't need anything from and you can pour into them and care for them. That's why as a church, we, we deeply love our relationships with Love Columbia, Into Action, with Loaves and Fishes. We love those relationships because we need each other, all right? But what happens in the church world is that we spend most of our time caring for people. Man, these people are just, they, they need me, and I just show up, and it's ministry. I got to love on them. And what happens is we get drained, and, and it's a recipe for burnout, God has so wired us that we're relational. I think it is wise to spend the majority of your time investing in the top three. Coach, comrades, and casuals. And then tithing your time to care. If you do that backwards, it feels really righteous for a few months. And then a couple months later, you don't like anybody. And you have none of these relationships. Like, People just need things from me. This is exhausting. Just like you can't put all your needs on one person... Don't be that one person for somebody else. We need to be wise with how we care for people because the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. You're going to do more good if you pace yourself than if you're just like, I got to care. All right, Jesus died for me, so I'm going to die for everybody else. Here we go, baby. Grip it and rip it. No. We need to, we need to know the relationships, navigate the relationships, and it's so important. This is wired into creation. God has said you love God and you love others. We experience God through others. It's not good to be alone. We're not experiencing all of God when it's just us and him. We need other people for our own flourishing. And this is actually wired into creation. See, up until like the 1970s, I've been reading a lot about infant studies, infants. And up until the 1970s, uh, doctors believed that infants were just basically blobs. 
Like they were just like, oh, they're not really super relational. They're not much. They're just like kind of blobs of, of people that will eventually, you know, kind of get with it. According to what I've been reading, that is not actually the consensus among, the, among infant studies. Infants are actually deeply and profoundly relational. In utero, infants can recognize and hear the sound of their mother, and as their face begins to develop muscles, they can see those muscles moving in response to hearing their mother's voice. Anyone who's worked in the nursery can attest to the truth of this statement. When they take young infants and place them together, if one infant starts crying, other infants will be in distress themselves and mimic the crying of their friend. You're like, nah, it's just a weird coincidence. They don't like the sound. Maybe, but they've also tried this where they have an audio recording of an infant's own crying, and they play it, and the infant doesn't cry. They mimic other infants. So children of mothers who are not depressed have learned how to regulate their own emotions. It's actually, once I figured this out, I did it to, to my son Shepard a lot when he was little. If you just like make him laugh, I mean, he mimics you. If you're happy, you make him laugh, he mimics you. And then there's this thing, like every 30 seconds, he looks away. And he keeps looking away. And I'm like, what's going on with this? Is that weird? It's actually, according to what uh, Dr. Todd Hall, what's happening is that that child is actually regulating his own emotions. So he's getting so overjoyed and so excited, he's got to look away so it'll slow his heartbeat down. It's amazing, right? Children of depressed mothers, they found, have less regulated heart rhythms because they haven't learned how to do that because they're just mimicking their moms. We are deeply wired for relationship. We're deeply wired. And the relationship, just like for infants, the relationships that are most transformative are from a caretaker. When someone says, hey, I'm here to meet your needs, we build an attachment to that person and we look to them and say, hey, I'm following your lead. Love you. How does God come toward us and build an attachment relationship? Romans chapter 5. In the beginning part of chapter 5, Paul has been talking a lot about Adam and about Eve and, how, and this whole sin problem. But then he says this, You see, at just the right time, when we were powerless, just like an infant, we were needing of a caretaker. Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely... Will anyone die for a righteous person? Though for a good person, someone possibly might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own theological rightness uh, for us. Oh, sorry. Hang on. God demonstrates his own truth. God demonstrates his own holiness. God puts on display God shows us in real time his love. We live at this tree when we think God just wants us to have good information, just to believe the right facts, which is important. But just like there was a relational problem, God provides a relational fix. We thought God was holding back from us, but really, he moved toward us. God 
puts his own love, his own desire to meet our needs when we were helpless. Like a mom nursing a baby, saying, you can't do anything unless I move toward you. That love is what transforms us. If you go back to Genesis 3, we see that there was a relational problem. The man and his wife didn't trust the relationship. And how does God move toward them? Look with me in verse 9. God called to the man, where are you? God is for us. He's coming after us. Many rabbis before Christ who studied this passage, they, they had this theory that God was actually going to let the man and his wife, if, if, they had, if they were going to have a conversation, and they were going to solve the problem there. But the man and his wife still didn't believe. They're like, ah, we've got to blame. We've got to hide. Two signs that you're living at this tree, when you blame others and when you hide. And God keeps moving toward them. Listen to what he says. He's, he asks questions. How relational is that? He's asking questions. He does not ask questions to the serpent, though. He just goes right into it. Look at what he says in verse 14. Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly. You'll eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. Now, this is a relational problem. The answer is relational. It's also a tree problem. And the answer is, comes in a tree. Between your what and hers? Between your seed. Where do trees come from? Seeds. It's an odd theme. But God has given us a picture of his life-giving presence. And so the tree of life isn't just a sacred picture it's a person. Jesus becomes the tree. And he moves toward us in love. While we were helpless. While we were infants. While we didn't know how to navigate harmful and beneficial, he moves toward us. The reason we can care for people, the reason we can pour into people, is because we've been poured into this isn't theory, folks. The name for this is relational spirituality. We're so wired for other people. We, won't experiencing, we will not experience flourishing without them. We're deeply needy people. And the question is, which tree are you going to live at? Are you going to take the invitation? Are you going to take the invitation to trust and say, he, he's working for my good. I don't know how, but I'm going to move toward others. Or are you, going to, are you going to stay at that other tree and say, people are scary, people are dangerous. I've got I've to self-protect. Aaron Ralston, had he been concerned about his own self-preservation, I don't want to live with one arm. What kind of life is that? Wouldn't have had any life at all. We do wild things in the name of self-preservation. But those of us who try to save our lives through self-preservation will lose them. The only way, the only way to experience the new life that comes on the other end of that is a death. And we didn't have to die first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, 
Father, we are needy folks. Father, we, we look out at a world that's relationally starved. And we have to confess, we too are relationally starved. Father, I pray that this would be a step that we take toward others. That we would take steps toward relationship. We'd take steps toward our neediness. God, I pray that we would be known as a people who love. In Jesus' name, amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.